1: Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick, Now, on to the show.
2: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 85th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, Sharing Knowledge So People Can Thrive. Today's topic is We're Better Together. I'm joined by Sarah and Larry Nannery. They are the co authors of What to Say Next Successful Communication in Your Work, Life, and Love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. The publisher is Tiller Press, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Sarah is the Director of Development for Autism Initiatives at Drexel University. Larry is a technology consultant who focuses on organizational change and life coaching. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So if you don't mind, can we get a brief overview of the book, some sense of what it's about?
1: Um, Yeah, sure. So I um... I'm Sarah, and um, we, Larry and I, wrote this book together. It was um, kind of something that came out of uh, just our shared experience of uh, me being autistic and Larry being what we call neurotypical, although he's anything but typical, um, (laughs) and how we've been able to figure out how to communicate together as partners, uh, as parents, and Larry has done a lot to help me. Um, figure out how to communicate professionally. So, you know, when we were looking early on for resources, uh, for me, as I was trying to learn some of these things, we didn't find much there, you know, we, I think we have books about highly sensitive people and how to, you know, get over shyness and things like that. But none of it was really applying to me and what my specific struggles were. So um, we decided that we You know, because we couldn't find what we were looking for, we could maybe help others by sharing some of what we had learned together.
0: So, Though I add my two cents throughout the book, I I think that was actually a perfect uh, overview. So I'm going to leave
1: it there.
2: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Well, I can relate uh, probably for many reasons. One, in, in business, I decided that I wanted to be an emotions expert specialist. I was shocked by how little literature there was about emotions in the business world, when they're obviously rife all the time. So, so clearly you go there quite readily. Um, Maybe this is particularly for, for Sarah in this case, can you talk about your own relationship to emotions, your own emotions, and particularly maybe the term internalization, if you don't mind bringing that into the answer.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think um, I have a lot of trouble with recognizing my own emotions and uh, processing emotions in real time uh, which often leads to me just ending up in a kind of a blank state until I can figure out what the emotion is that I'm experiencing and why um, so uh, it takes me time to process emotions especially big bigger emotions and it can come across and for a lot of autistic people uh, have the same experience it can come across as if I don't have any emotions because in the moment, it's just so much for me to process that it, it comes out as being aloof or, or being blank and emotionless, when in fact, there's so much going on under the surface that it just can't come out. There's, it's like a bottleneck situation going on. So um, for me, that ends up with uh, doing a lot of internalizing. Uh, when I was younger, I would, you know, this term of kind of bottling things up and keeping them um, close inside because I didn't know how to get them out. And something that I do a lot now that has helped is writing things down just to get it out somewhere in the world so that it's not stuck inside in this kind of internalized spiral.
0: So I wanted to share a, a case in point when we were first together, uh, it was you know a, a young relationship and us having our communication difficulties and just whatever life was. And the emotional event or whatever was kicked off shut Sarah down for a good two hours of no words, not even a, a, a barely a tear, just completely frozen. And as somebody who likes to talk and communicate, that was an interesting uh, experience of how Sarah dealt with her emotions. And then, of course, everything came out later and it was lovely and, and wonderful. Uh, I went through a few boxes of Kleenex tissue boxes here. It <laughs> <Sure. laughs> uh, was like just to to hold all of that emotion at once and then to try to let it go. That bottleneck was huge.
2: Sure. Well, you, you mentioned a couple of hours because that was going to be my, my follow-on question to what Sarah had said because you talked about a time delay. I'm sure the answer must vary. But is that two-hour delay that Larry, you just mentioned, is that kind of – I guess I'll say typical. I mean, different circumstances must create different kinds of time delays.
0: Sure, I, I, I want to start that one. And just, yeah. No, it's it's no longer typical, uh, and it speaks to Sarah's uh, self uh, efforts at uh, trying to understand her own emotions and okay. how to succeed, and, and and really just how to how to live in this world. Um, it's not really a a healthy practice to, to get stuck. And uh, I'll let Sarah answer the second part of it, but sure. uh, not at all. It It's really okay. changed.
1: Yeah. And I think it also speaks to you, Larry, knowing that I can have this propensity to shut down like that. And so um, being able to take a step back and stop the emotional train before it gets to that point uh, helps me also. Um, I think it, it happened a lot more. Uh, When I was a child, when I was growing up, and I didn't really know what was happening. But now, um, as an adult, it's easier for me to see it coming from a ways off. And so I can tell Larry, I need 10 minutes, uh, you know, and I would, I'll go into the room by myself and have 10 minutes of quiet so that I can reset and not get to the point where I'm uh, a non-functional for an hour or more. Um, so that definitely helps
2: and in an office setting, uh, as opposed to when you're with Larry, um do you also ask for those two minutes? i mean how, how do you navigate those situations?
1: yeah it it can be different in an in a work setting, of course, everybody's work setting is different. I have been very blessed to have work settings where I manage my own time for the most part. Um, so I can take. A few minutes after a big meeting or you know to prep before i know something is going to be more of an emotionally charged exchange uh, i am able to, to take that time usually uh, to either recover or prep myself
0: and I, I want to throw in here that though i am um, what they say is neurotypical though you know that's a whole nother pandora's box i too and i think just about everyone in this world Needs those moments, and what I've developed is I drink a cup of coffee, and I just say, you know what, I have to go refill my cup of coffee, even if I spill it sure. into the trash can. that oh, do look; it needs a refill. <laughs> we all need that moment to recalibrate ourselves, and you know, it with Sarah, obviously, it, it can be uh, significantly bigger than what I might need to calibrate. But we all we all have that somewhere. It's it's just a trait. That uh, is a little bit more profound with Sarah
2: okay to to round out this part of the discussion on internalization there was a wonderful comment in the book said uh, Sarah wrote to me, my internal world is ninety percent of the world um has that changed it sounds like you you've talked about things are easier and what might have been a two hour delay is ten minutes is is that ninety percent does that still hold
1: Yeah, I think that for me There's so much thought that goes into every single action, every single word. Um, Now that I've been, you know, that I've been alive for 30 plus years, I've gotten better at um, doing it a little bit faster, but there's still so many uh, things happening behind the surface that I have to try and manage um, manually, like so many people, I feel like, um, do this, get to a point where they do this automatically. They, they can automatically, um, read social situations or automatically know what to say next, or, you know, they just kind of know where they're going and might need a little bit of a check-in here and there. I'm checking in with myself every single second. Uh, and it gets very tiring, but it also, um, I've been learning how to be able to to automate some of that myself. I just have to I have to do it all manually instead of relying on my brain to do it automatically.
2: Okay, um, makes sense to me. If I can move to another topic, but kind of related because we're talking about those those back and forth moments and uh, whether it's done automatically or or manually. Uh, there's lots to navigate, uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm moving here kind of to you know small talk and you 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 mentioned creating conversational sandwiches which is a wonderful image and, and you even brought in the role of humor and how that can have its own uh you know whitewater rapid moments to try to navigate um so small talk and humor if you don't mind maybe saying a bit on that front
1: Yeah sure um so for me it always is helpful because I'm doing everything manually to have a framework to work from um because then i can i can go back to that framework and use that as my automatic process um so so for example for small talk which is something that doesn't come naturally to me and i think doesn't come naturally to a lot of people um i often will have like things in my back pocket metaphorically speaking that i can talk about uh, when it comes to small talk so you know i write about in the book if if, I, if it's a Monday, I know that I can talk about a couple of things that just happened on the weekend. Or if it's a Thursday, I know I can talk about a couple of things that are coming up on the next weekend. Um, you know, I, I might just familiarize myself with the weather or with current events just so that I have it as something that I can refer back to if I need to be in a small talk situation. Um, and, you know, I've learned that small talk is important for building a common ground with someone before you dive right into the real meat of what it might be that you need to talk about with someone. Or if, it, if it's just a chance interaction, just to be able to connect with someone instead of, I'm perfectly happy standing in silence, <laughs> but uh, I know a lot of people find that awkward. So being able to put people at ease with that. Um, you mentioned also the the framework of making a sandwich. You know that's also helpful for me when we get into the the flow of a conversation. You know once you get through the small talk, then you start talking with someone. Um, it helps me to think about being able to to add a piece to the conversation and then purposely making myself stop and let the other person add a piece to the conversation because otherwise, uh, you know, I, usually I would just let the other person talk over me and I would just listen because I do love to listen. Or if it's a, something that I'm very passionate about, I might end up doing all the talking and I don't get any input from the other person. So it helps to have that framework to go back to.
2: Sure. And, and, and Larry, when you're at a, a party and at a conversational sandwich is being made by, by uh, Sarah, how do you help play, Chef?
0: <laughs> well, uh, honestly, if we get to a point where she's making a, a sandwich to somebody, <laughs> 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 this conversation sponsored by Subway. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I actually will. I will not, Badinski. I will unless I have something yeah. to contribute, some cheese or whatever. That is Sarah's conversation. What What I really want to talk about is that. The, this notion that we, we call hit points and Sarah wakes up every day and let's say it's a hundred hit points. If, if she engages in a, in a conversation, the small talk might take 15 or 20 of those hit points from her and just kind of wear her out a little bit. And then hopefully the larger conversation, the purpose will restore some of those hit points. will make it a little bit easier for her to, to feel comfortable, to feel re-energized. But but there is a cost to to that small talk that um, not everybody experiences.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Well, I can admit I I relate uh, in the sense that my family moved to Italy when I was a six year old boy, and I found myself going to Italian first grade in a fishing village without knowing the language. Mm, so I wow. could, I can only do the math unit. So I I sat there all day basically looking at my teammates or my classmates and trying to understand what was happening. And then I came back to St. Paul, Minnesota, and everybody thought I was a foreigner because I had <laughs> European cut clothing and, uh, you know, I sounded a bit different and so on and so forth. So finding small talk, finding continuity, finding common ground that you just mentioned, uh, uh, I- I've gone through that. And um, it's it's um, it does add its own stresses. It does make you very attentive to what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, there's another part I wanted to move to. You're, you're talk about uh, in terms of an ASD brain being a little bit more prone to what you called weak central coherence. Um, if you can tell us about a couple aspects of that, uh, a tendency to black and white thinking, uh, lack of big picture thinking, uh, any place else you want to go with that topic. But mm-hmm. I think listeners would be interested.
1: Yeah. So the I, yeah, there's the technical term is that kind of weak central coherence, which is being able to pull out the main point of something or find the most important thing or, you know, generalizing. Uh, and all of that are, are are things that I have trouble with, and that a lot of autistic people do have trouble with. Um, for me, it really manifests in in what you mentioned in terms of this tendency for black and white thinking, which is kind of an all or nothing approach. Um, For me, if something is not 100% right, then it's wrong. It's completely wrong. So, you know, that lends itself to a lot of perfectionism and a lot of this kind of all or nothing feel, which is just not, you just, life doesn't happen that way. It's not perfect. (laughs) Um, So being able to learn how to navigate some of the gray areas and and be okay with something being only 85% okay um, and still still that being good enough and moving forward, um, that's been a real struggle for me. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, when you talk about like big picture thinking in this context, it, it helps so much to be able to come out of the details um, because my brain is, and a lot of people you, we see so many of the details, like I'm looking at the at the forest, but I don't know that there's a forest because I'm so overwhelmed by all of the trees. And so it doesn't even occur to me sometimes that I need to take a step back and that there is a forest to look at and I need to know where that is in the bigger picture. Um, so for me, it's a constant struggle to remind myself that I need to take a moment and understand what that bigger picture is, why why I'm here, what's the most important thing, um, because then that gives me the ability to move forward through something instead of being stuck in the details.
2: I, I find that fascinating. I admit that as you were talking and explaining that, I remember once being in the Peruvian uh, part of the Amazon basin and feeling completely immersed <laughs> in my environment and trying to, you know, keep track of it and realizing very large insects were suddenly on my back <laughs> and and so forth. So it's it does give me a real feel for, you know, how you approach these things. That's that's interesting. Uh, Larry, was there anything there that you wanted to add cuz often in the book there's what's called the, the two cents portion of the book.
0: Uh, just to, just a callback that what Sarah doesn't do is Sarah does not fake it until she makes it. And it talks about that confidence and, and when Sarah says pulling out the, the big picture item and being able to focus, um, the more that Sarah is able to get into what she knows or what she can research, what she can learn, that's where she's going to be successful. If it's just fake it, just walk in like you, you own the place or you've done it a hundred times, that's not a successful on-road for Sarah.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. And I imagine that must make it interesting when we move to what I want to talk about next, office politics, because there's there's a good deal of fakery sometimes, at least in some offices. And I've just published a book called Blah, 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 A Snarky Guide to Office Lingo, which is very much about trying to navigate implicit and explicit power structures. So you you very rightly bring up in the book that some of the underpinnings of office politics and things that can be real challenges, particularly for, for you, Sarah, is trying to know the role or the the impact of things like status and cachet and rapport. Um, what can you tell us about those three factors and how you you work with it?
1: Yeah, it's I <laughs> I don't know uh, almost anything about either any of those three things because I, <laughs> to, I, I that's not something that I pick up on naturally at all. Um, so sure. actually, I I want to throw this over to Larry because he's helped me so much with just learning what those things are and how to spot them uh, which I still struggle with
2: okay fair enough yeah. Larry what do you what do you what can you enlighten uh, us with <laughs> uh, they're all very
0: important to the people who value them I don't think that they are probably the most important thing on how the work actually totally gets done mm. and, and I can't wait to read your book because I'm I'm sure there will be some insights into how do you get, get through the fluff um, of getting everyone comfortable before you can get, get on points? And there's a there's a favorite uh, anecdote of uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, where he walks into a conference room and somebody says, the weather today, and he looks at him and it all but throws him out of the conference room and says, we don't have time for that. We're here at Apple to do this business. So there is definitely some culture and i spent a lot of years as a consultant for the army where or I guess the army and the air force there was very little rapport building during the day because it was structure it was command and that's very different than than where we are in the real world we're sitting here right now in a beautiful conference room and uh there's a water cooler across the way and, boy, if I hadn't watched Ted Lasso last night, then what would I talk about with those people? Mm, sure, that's, that's just a whole different dynamic.
1: Yeah. I would just add, I think it is important though, to some degree. And, and, you know, it depends on what your work situation is, but I have found that um, some of the advice that Larry has given me in terms of making sure, like going out of my way to go and see somebody in person rather than, Right, shooting off an email or even trying to pick up the phone uh, helps because you start to just develop a relationship with your coworkers. And that just makes things a little bit, run a little bit smoother sometimes. Like if you run into a hiccup or if somebody misses a deadline or something, you have that relationship to fall back on. And that can be very helpful in a way that I never really understood before.
2: Yeah, no, I remember that point in the book, and I thought it was a, a point well made that uh, there can be a, a vast separation between an email and a phone call. I remember having a meeting at McDonald's, and she said, uh, We had to delay for just a moment. My boss in Germany misunderstood my. Last email and pick up on the nuances I now have to make an international phone call to save the situation and I'll be back to you shortly. Um and so she stepped out of the room to make the call. Uh let's move to your, your own relationship. Uh there's a wonderful statement. You say valuing intentions over outcomes uh can can help a lot. Uh what do you what do you mean by that, particularly in relationship to repair strategies and I, I love this term emotional reciprocity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in terms of our relationship together, Larry and I, um, because of the way that we communicate differently and we perceive the world differently, and this is this is going to happen for anybody who's in a relationship, um, but particularly in our case because uh, we are neurodiverse, miscommunication can happen a lot. And so, being in a place where we both remember to value each other's intentions over the outcomes uh, helps to just make that a little bit softer. It doesn't, uh, it's not an excuse for the outcomes. The outcomes are still what they are and they may be painful, Um, but knowing that the intention was good uh, and not malicious does help when it comes to repairing, you know, what might've happened. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about repairing strategies and emotional reciprocity. Those are kind of technical terms, but really what they're getting down to is how are you working together to come to an emotional um, common ground?
0: Good intentions. This is all about, we, we start the day with good intentions. We want to be successful. Uh, we want to be good parents. We want to uh, have good days. And when things don't always work out the way that we expect, how, how do you recover from that? How do you pivot and move forward? So just remembering the grander picture, remembering that I wanted to make that really nice meal. And yes, I, I ruined the, the, the rice this time, but that doesn't take away from the rest of the effort and the rest of the, the quality of the food.
1: Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're enjoying it together. There
0: you go.
2: And you communicate what the intentions were, I imagine, so that everyone understands. I mean, I I was uh, almost tempted. Last night I was watching uh, an old Paul Newman movie, Cool Hand Luke, and I was thinking we could have used as the intro that moment where they say, what we have here is a failure to communicate because Mm -hmm. there are lots of failures to communicate uh, in the land. Uh, A last question I wanted to go to, uh, you mentioned at some point in the book, modeling emotional stability. And I certainly want to hear what some of your solutions or approaches are there, but I also wanted to grant some some leeway because I know from studying the big five personality traits myself, it's, it's pretty amazing to the degree to which all of us as human beings are much less stable than we imagine we are. Mm. And so emotional stability is kind of the positive way of saying uh, one of those five traits, which is neuroticism, uh, which frankly can plague all of us. I'm curious as to what some of those solutions are because I think everybody, you know, appreciates tips and tactics uh, wherever they fall on spectrums in life in terms of seeking emotional stability.
1: Yeah, I think. And when we write about this specifically, I think it's in the the parenting chapter where we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about um, using your being able to use your emotions as a tool, as a teaching tool, really. Um, And modeling that ability to um, control your own emotions to a certain degree, but I think also being able to show your children, um, you know, wherever they are on the um, neurodiverse uh, or neurotypical spectrum, being able to show your children that you do have emotions, you are a human being, uh, and yet they don't control you, you know, Um, and you can Especially when you're when you're dealing with a, a a child who might be emotional, being able to take that step back and and let them see that that they are affecting you, but that it's not it's not the end of the world. You know, you you do maintain that um, control, and you can model for them how they can start to have some of that control over their own emotions. Which for any kid, you know, autistic or not, young kids are going to have big big emotions to deal with.
0: So being able to nurture, it's like, so Sarah, for for your birthday this year, you got an iPad that you can draw with Mm -hmm. and that gives you some quiet time, some salvation, some opportunity to, to be restorative. Mm -hmm. And with, uh, with kids, if it's, they go off and they read a book or you're walking down the street and I, I said earlier about coffee, going in and pouring yourself an extra cup of coffee that, finding ways to identify where you are emotionally and both allowing the emotion to exist because it's true. And and if you suppress it too much, then it's going to get bottled up and it's going to affect the rest of your day, but then finding ways to park it and put it off to, uh, to the side so that you can continue and, and be successful and, a bad fifteen minutes doesn't become a bad hour or a bad day or you know, spiral as far as you want to go there with the snowball. That that's very important.
2: Okay. Um, well, I, I want to thank you so much. I admit I'm a, a former poet, so I'm not sure how much central coherence I always have at times, mm-hmm. <laughs> and whether that's my specialty. But uh, there was lots of wonderful points in the book and different avenues it pursued from from workplace to raising a child, and hopefully we cover those things. Is there one last comment? Maybe you want to make one last insight to offer you before we close the conversation
0: uh I, I would love to to share one of the things that that we don't do which is that we don't compromise that we don't look at the day as 50 50 and who cooks and who cleans and who does this and who does that we we, we work together to be successful and to not only honor each other, but to identify and know what those traits are that we're bringing to the table. And I think that that really helps keep us grounded. And uh, you know, on the best days, we really get to enjoy the, the, the fruits of our labor. But on the, the rough days, they're not quite as bad because we, we had those intentions and we worked together as best as we could to be successful.
1: Yeah, and that leads into the last point I would want to make, which is that we're better together. And that's something that Larry and I have uh, used as a mantra since the beginning in terms of what is our bigger picture. That's our reminder of what's most important, the fact that we're together and we're better together. And I think that that applies more broadly as well. You know, when you think about neurodiversity and diversity in general and how we really need different minds and different perspectives to come together and we're all better for it.
2: Okay. And indeed uh, this episode is entitled we're better together. And now we have a little more illumination as to why Uh, I want to thank you both Sarah and Larry. Uh, Our time is up. I'm your host of Dan Hill's EQ spotlight. This has been episode number 85. My guest Sarah and Larry Nannery. They are the co-authors of what to say next successful communication in work Life and Love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory3W's and sensorylogic.com or the New Books Network. Type in the show's name and you'll find those previous episodes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Johnny Seitz. He is an autistic tightrope artist in the movie Loving Lamppost, who said, Stop thinking about normal. You don't have a big enough imagination for what your child can become. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.